we are honored to be together with you tonight. I know that uh, we've enjoyed the blessings of the Lord. I don't know if you got your socks blessed off today. <laughs> I didn't actually get my socks blessed off, but I've really enjoyed the rain. And it really beats what we had a couple weeks ago when we had the sandstorms. So the, the blessing of the rain is something that gives lots and lots of life in lots of different ways. So welcome everyone. Welcome our King of Kings family. It's great to be together with everyone, to be able to worship the Lord together. Don't ever take this for granted that God has given us this great opportunity. And what a great worship time together tonight. Let's give them a big hand. Don't take that for granted either. Uh, we want to welcome a few special guests that are in the house tonight. We are so happy to have back with us Hilda Chen. Hilda's with us. Uh, long time helped us establish our prayer tower up on the 21st floor. She's with us for the next few weeks. It's great to have you here with us. And then uh, a great group from Indiana, Pastor Matt Wickham and his group from, there's Pastor Matt right there, his group from Brandywine Community Church. Let's give them a big hand, guys. It's great to have you here with us. <laughs> Pastor Chad is traveling right now. He's representing us as he travels through Europe. He's got lots of great meetings in front of him, and we're excited to hear the reports back from those meetings. But we want to keep him in prayer, keep his family in prayer. It's always hard when the pastor's traveling and the family is left back behind, so let's keep them in prayer. And uh, he'll be back with us in a couple of weeks, but we're excited to hear what the Lord is doing with them there. Uh, and then uh, we are excited to be able to have a worship and prayer night on Wednesday night. So if you're free on Wednesday night, don't just stay home in the rain. Come out in the rain. Get your socks blessed off a couple times, and let's worship together. And there's a few things that we're going to pray into together as a family, as a community. And we know that God, he, he comes into those moments when we come together intentionally around prayer to honor him and to lift him up. And so you don't want to miss that, truly. It's a great time together with each other as a family and uh, together with the Lord. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been going through a series out of the book of Isaiah. We're calling the highlights of Isaiah because we're not actually going chapter by chapter. We would be here till at least the end of the year. We're kind of cherry picking and pulling out some different highlights and messages that the Lord's been giving to us. And uh, Pastor Chad has been leading us through these, and the messages have truly been outstanding. Every single one of them has been outstanding, and hopefully tonight will be some of the same. But you've, if you've missed any of those, go back and grab a few of those in our archives. You will be blessed. Some great messages. They're timely messages for the body, for us at King of Kings. And it's great that the, the Bible never dies. It, it never gets used up. So some of the same scriptures that you maybe have read before, some new insights, new truths, new things to apply to our lives we're finding as we walk through the book of Isaiah. Tonight, we're going to continue out of the book of Isaiah. And again, it's not in chronological order. We're going to kind of cherry pick tonight a couple of different things. But I thought it would be good to kind of highlight the book of Isaiah, kind of how did it come to be? What is it? Some interesting facts about it. Isaiah was a prophet who prophesied, he was God's prophet to the kingdom of Judah and to Israel and, to, and actually the nations around at the time. He was a prophet during the reign of four or five kings. 
He was the prophet for King Uzziah and Jotham, Jotham the, the father-son team, King Ahaz, King Hezekiah, and then King Manasseh. Scholars believe that King Manasseh actually executed Isaiah because of his prophecies, sawed him in two, and you'll find him in the, the Hall of Fame in Hebrews. Scholars think that he was the one that was sawn in two by King Manasseh. The book of Isaiah then is a collection of his messages over those many, many years, 40 plus years, his prophecies that span all of that time to those kings, to Israel, to the Jewish people, and to the nations that were around them, and really prophecies for our day and time as well. Some interesting facts about the book of Isaiah. One of the scrolls that was found at the Dead Sea was the book of Isaiah, and of all of the books, this was one that was found in its entirety. All 66 chapters were there. It's uh, dated clear back to this scroll, is dated clear back to 125 BC, 125 years before Yeshua. The next oldest copy at the time was a thousand years older. 900 AD, 900 years after Yeshua. So this newest, earliest scroll, which you can still see today at the Israel Museum, is amazingly, word for word, exactly like the Isaiah that you'll find today. A few different spellings or a few different punctuations, but the exact same book. Amazing that the world still has it. Now, if you don't have time to go to the Israel Museum, you can go online and you can read chapter by chapter. If you read Hebrew, you can read chapter by chapter the scroll that was found at the Dead Sea Scrolls and kind of go through that book and get a glance at what it is. 66 chapters, handwritten, can still be seen today. It's astonishing that it's available for us. Now, some fun facts about the book of Isaiah. Knowingly or unknowingly, the book of Isaiah was divided into 66 chapters, the same number of books that we find in our Bible today, the, the Old and New Covenants together, 66 books of the Bible. Scholars think that the book of Isaiah is distinctly set into two different sections, a section of 39 chapters and a section of 27 chapters, so that the first 39 chapters, 1 through 39, equals the same number of books that we find in the Old Covenant and uh, amazingly carry the same general message that the Old Covenant uh, speaks and uh, teaches us today. And then the second section, the second distinct part, chapters 40 through 66, 27 chapters, the same number of books that we find in the New Covenant with the same general message and specific message that summarizes the message of the New Covenant. This second section of 27 chapters opens in chapter 40 with the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, words that would later be used by the immerser John, John the baptizer. Then it moves on to the servant of the Lord who is anointed by the Spirit of God, dies for the sins of his people, and is raised and exalted after his death. Then it moves on to the declaration that you shall be my witnesses, like we find in the new covenant to the ends of the earth. And then it finishes with God saying, I'm making all things new. 
Like a new covenant, I have created a new heaven and a new earth. In many ways, scholars see the book of Isaiah as a, a composite of the whole Bible, the, the, the new and the old covenant together, the messages being represented the same as the new and the old covenant. It's also important then for us to note that in the new covenant, Isaiah is quoted often. In fact, Yeshua himself quotes the book of Isaiah as his third favorite book, first being the book of Psalms, then Deuteronomy, and then Yeshua is often quoting the book of Isaiah. Overall, the book of Isaiah is quoted in the New Covenant. It's the second most times, 55 times, you're going to find Isaiah being quoted in the New Covenant writings. The first book being the book of Psalms, which has 68 quotes. That's pretty amazing. This is the book of Isaiah. It's so often quoted in the New Covenant that many modern believers who aren't really aware of Isaiah or some of the things he said think that these are New Testament quotes. Listen to these. These are all from Isaiah. Grieving the Holy Spirit, God shall wipe away all tears. A voice of one crying in the wilderness. You shall be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess. All of these and more were first written and prophesied by Isaiah, hundreds of years before the New Covenant was ever finally written. And then one last thing that is interesting, and whether it's on purpose or not, but this is an interesting fact, and so this is going to lead us into where we're going tonight. This second section of 27 chapters, verse, or chapters 40 through 66, 27 chapters. These 27 chapters are broken into three equal sections of nine chapters each, each section coming with a theme in its writing. The first section, 40, chapter 40 through 48, is the theme of comforting God's people. Chapters 49 through 57, where we're going tonight, is the theme of the servant of the Lord who dies in raises again. And then the last section, chapter 58 to through 66, are all about the future coming glory. And then it's interesting that this center section, chapter 49 to 57, in the center of that, the verse that's right in the middle, is Isaiah 53, 5, which reads like this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The core of this section has the same message as the core of the New Testament writings. Yeshua crucified for us. So tonight, we want to dive into these sections. So grab your Bibles, grab your devices. Let's open up to chapter 52 and 53. We're going to look at this section, which is about 15 verses. In this section, God inspires Isaiah to begin prophesying and to describe in detail God's servant, God's own right arm, his arm of salvation. And it begins in chapter 52 at the end, chapter 52, verse 13. So that's where we're going to start. Chapter 52, verse 13. And it includes all 12 verses of chapter 53 for a total of 15 verses. 
Amazingly, these 15 verses then are broken down into five stanzas as one poem. When it was all divided up, the, the divider upper didn't capture all the 52. But it's all one poem, one description that we see. Chapter 52, starting in verse 13, all of verse, uh, verses of 53 Five stanzas broken into three verses each, and each of those stanzas has a theme or an idea, a concept, which we won't actually get into tonight. But if you want some great study, I highly recommend this study. It's fascinating, and it really amplifies who God is in the the detail. God never does anything randomly. Pastor Chad is always saying this. God never does anything random. And when you read through this and you see the details, you realize God doesn't do anything random. He's very detailed. So let's start in verse 13 of chapter 52. And I'm reading out of the NIV, but you can follow along in whatever version you would like. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond any human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and the kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see and what they have not heard, they will understand. Isaiah 53, chapter one, or verse one. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And, he, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence and there was no deceit, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And through the Lord, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. 
by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Such a great poetic piece of scripture that most of us have heard, most of us have read. It's quoted multiple times in the New Covenant, and we're going to read a few of those tonight. But at its writing, most people didn't understand who the prophet was talking about. God's righteous servant, God's own right arm. However, down through time, from the time of Yeshua and his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, many in the body of Messiah begin to understand the prophet's writings, begin to understand chapter 52 and 53 was about Yeshua, God's arm of salvation. Many of us would say it's obvious. There's so many parallels and specific details. How could it not be Messiah? How could it not be Yeshua? Yet many believing and non-believing can't see it. They don't see it. They can't understand it. Because one of the biggest stumbling blocks is this idea that Yeshua, God's son, God's arm of salvation, the Lord of glory, God himself could somehow be human, a man, and still remain God. And not just a, a common man, uh, he, he's just too common, so plain, so statureless, so non-kingly, so unexceptional. And this can't be God. For many, there is just no way that God would do this. How, how could this be the Lord of all creation, the Son of God, God divine? And this is actually the, the first few verses there in chapter 52 and in 53. This is where Isaiah goes with his conversation. He, he tells us that this servant of God is a man who is so plain that he's easily overlooked, not seen. People look the other way, they miss him. His appearance is so disfigured from what they were expecting or are expecting that he's beyond recognition. They can't recognize him as God. They can't see him because he doesn't look like what they think he should look like. Isaiah even says that many were appalled when they looked at him. This can't be it. This can't be him. This can't be God. Isaiah highlights the aspects of this aspect of God's servant. He says, who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The message version says it this way. Who would have thought that God's saving power would look like this? This isn't what we expected. It's not what we wanted. The one true God shouldn't look like this, a mere human being. And not even a prominent human being. He didn't have any worldly stature, no prominence. There was no esteem connected to Yeshua. No high qualifications. 
He wasn't a wonderful orator, a brilliant intellect, a military power. He wasn't wealthy. He didn't have a charismatic personality like the world would expect. Rather, God allows us to see his servant take on the form of a servant, a slave, a common criminal, a sinner, through our eyes, the lowest form of humanity. So it shouldn't surprise us that only a few days after Yeshua's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, as the crowds gathered around him shouting, Hosanna, and laying down their coats and exalting him, the king who's going to conquer the Romans, who's going to take over and establish God's kingdom on earth. The same people, just a few days later, crying out for his execution. This can't be God's Messiah. That's not God. He's too human. The humanity of Yeshua has been debated and contested in and out of the church and in and out of believers' lives, non-believers' lives, still to today. And I'm guessing that even here in this room and, and online, if we took a poll of what everyone thinks and believes, we'd get a whole cross section of understanding, a whole cross section of beliefs. So let me ask you, when you think of Yeshua, close your eyes, when you think of who Yeshua is, where do you land most often? Is he human being like you and me with a little bit of divinity in him? Or is he fully God, walking around in a human suit and less like you and me? Tonight, as we continue to go forward, we want to examine Yeshua's humanity and why it's important that he's human. What, why is it important? How does it impact our lives? How does it impact the gospel and the world around us today? Yeshua's humanity is huge. And that's what we want to examine tonight. When we think about it, it is an astounding statement, an astounding claim, this reality that the eternal son of God became a human being and lived and died and rose again as a man like you and me on the earth. And yet this declaration rests at the very heart of the Christian faith. Yeshua's incarnation is as significant for us and God's good news, the gospel, as the truth is of his divinity. I want to say that again, Yeshua's incarnation is as significant for us as the truth is of his divinity. Both carry equal weight and power in our lives. Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 52 and 53 is one of the places in scripture that highlights for us our key point tonight. This is our key point. And we're going to go through it in just a second in, in uh, Isaiah this is our key point, that Yeshua, God's saving arm, needed to be human. Because only a human, excuse me, because it was only possible for a human to serve as humanity's representative, our substitute, 
and our example. I want to read it one more time. Yeshua, God's saving arm, needed to be human because it was only possible for a human and is only possible for a human to serve as humanity's representative, our substitute, and our example. Isaiah highlights it this way as our representative. He was a man of sufferings, familiar with pain. By his knowledge, my righteous service, Isaiah says, will justify many. He's our representative. And he made intercession for the transgressors, you and I. As substitute, Isaiah says, surely he took up our pain. And he bore our suffering for the transgressions of my people. He was punished. Because the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. And then as our example, Isaiah says, my servant will act wisely. He will sprinkle many nations. After he suffered, which he is our example of suffering, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death. To do this, to act as our representative, our substitute, and our example, Yeshua had to be fully human, just like you and me, fully human, with all of our human limits, all of our frailties. He had to take on himself all that it means to be a man, to be human, body, soul, mind, and will, the full nature of being human, and yet without sin. And at the same time, while he was doing this, he remained fully God, never surrendering or taking anything away from his full divinity. And this is where most of us get stuck. We can grasp this idea that Yeshua is human. He's like me. But that makes him a little less like God because he's more like me in some of our minds. Or we can embrace this idea that Yeshua is God. But it makes him less human. He certainly didn't experience and feel and know what it feels like to be a human being. But it's challenging, this is a challenging concept for us to, to fully grasp that Yeshua is fully God, fully divine, and at the exact same time is fully human, fully God, excuse me, fully human, just like you and me. So let me ask you again, where do you often land the most when you think about Yeshua? Is he human being with a little bit of divinity? Or is he fully God and not a lot like you or me? Because where we land impacts how we integrate the truth of the gospel and how we engage with Yeshua, how we engage with God. So let's explore Yeshua's humanity together for just a little bit. Yeshua is in one individual, one person, exists two natures. The book of Philippians describes this for us in chapter two. It says in his very nature, he was God. But he did not think that being 
equal with God, was something that he should hold on to. Instead, he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant. He was made in human form. He appeared as a man. He came down to the lowest level. It's important in this scripture and all the other scriptures that talk about Yeshua's humanity, it never once says that he let go of his divinity to become human. He left his position, the right hand of the Father, to step down into the earth and to take on the form of human kindness, but he never let go of his divinity. So in the person of Yeshua, two, divine, two natures exist. The divine nature that he shares equally with the Father and with the Spirit, and the human nature that he assumed in his incarnation so that he could be exactly like you and like me. These two natures, the human and the divine, are equally blended as one in his one person, without any confusion, without any change, but also without any divisions, without any separations, so that when we focus on the divinity of Yeshua, it in no way diminishes his humanity. And vice versa, when we focus on the humanity of Yeshua, it doesn't lessen or reduce his divinity. He took all of what it means to be human as divine God, body, soul, and mind, and will, and he stepped into mankind only without the sin. This is where everyone also gets confused. How could he possibly not sin if he was human? How could he possibly be tempted if he was God? Let's read some of these scriptures. Hebrews 4 describes this reality this way. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Yeshua, the Son of God, let us firmly hold to the faith that we possess, profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. He empathizes with our weaknesses. He experienced the same weaknesses. But the author says, we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet without sin. This is phenomenal. Yeshua experiences in his human flesh everything that you and I have experienced as a human being, the same temptations to sin. And yet he did it without sin. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the gift of God's humanity to us, the man who was without sin. So let's examine some of Yeshua's human qualifications. Luke tells us that he was born a human. Luke 2 describes his birth in the manger, in the swaddling, wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger. He was conceived by Mary and God, the Holy Spirit. Luke later describes that he grew up and he developed, the, the child grew and became strong in the favor of the God was upon him. Then he experienced physical human limits. And I love this part. Like each one of us, Yeshua possessed all of the marks of humanity. 
He knew what it felt like to be hungry. He knew what it felt like to be thirsty. He knew what it felt like to grow weary, to be tired. He probably got the flu along the way. He had the full range of human emotions and never sinned. He knew what it felt like to be angry, to be afraid. He knew what it felt like to be um, tired and weary and all the emotions that come with those things as well. He voluntarily, scripture tells us, he chose to step into the infirmities that are common to all fallen mankind, every man, every woman, so that he could fully understand and represent us before the Father. He was tempted, according to Hebrews chapter 2, as a human man, he suffered in his temptations. Though we can argue that it was impossible for him to sin as God, the biblical text is clear that he was tested and he was tempted and that he suffered in that testing and tempting just like you and me so that he could fully represent us. He suffered and he died and he was buried. Yeshua's passion fully highlights the extent of his humanity. He assumed the form of sinful flesh and he took our place, our substitute. He was represented as a guilty sinner a common thief in order to condemn sin in his own body through his death. Romans describes it this way. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be, to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The message version says it this way, God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as some remote and unimportant. In his son Yeshua, he personally took on the human condition entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. Second Corinthians says it this way, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He was raised in his humanity. The same body that he lived in and that he died in, he was raised to life in. And this is important for us to capture this as the first fruits, ushering in the age of resurrection and eternal life, becoming our example that this is what we're looking forward to as we live in eternity. First Corinthians 15 describes this this way, but Messiah has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as, Adam all, at, for as in Adam all died, so in Yeshua all will be made alive. He continues today in his kingly priestly duty. So Yeshua today at the right hand of God, the 
first fruits of human resurrection, sits at the right hand of God in his kingly priestly duties. Listen to Colossians' description of this, Colossians 3. Since then, you have been raised with Messiah. Set your hearts on things above where Yeshua is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life now is hidden with Yeshua in God. When Messiah, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is our promise, our example. We will appear as resurrected human flesh to sit in eternity with our God and with Yeshua. Hebrews describes it this way. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing their office. But because Yeshua lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless without sin, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Romans 8.34, when, excuse me, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Messiah Yeshua who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God as a resurrected human and is also interceding for us. And he will return in his humanity, his resurrected humanity. He will return in his humanity. He didn't shed his humanity. This is important for us to capture because he's our example. He's the first fruits of the resurrected human life that God promises to us. He didn't shed his humanity as he entered heaven. Whew, I'm glad I'm done with that. Don't want to do that one again. God, please don't send me there again. He didn't shed it. He remains even to today in his resurrected human state. In fact, on the day that he descended from heaven, the, end, the angel announced to his apostles that he would return just as he had been taken up. This same Yeshua has been taken from you up into heaven and he will come back in the same way that you've seen him go up into heaven. He remains the first fruits glorified, resurrected, sitting at the right hand of the Father and we will look like him in our resurrected life. He's our example. In conclusion, this is the picture that God wants us to capture, that Yeshua's humanity was full and complete. He took on himself all of what we know. He did it willingly. He didn't have it forced on him. And in that, he's our example. In his obedience to God's plan and God's purpose, he willingly followed a path that most of us wouldn't want to go down. He took on himself the same human nature, its limits, its frailties, without ever surrendering any of his divinity. He's fully God and fully man. We want to wrap up our thoughts tonight with Hebrews chapter 2. 
But we see one, the author says, we see one who was made a little lower, excuse me, who was made a little while, like mankind, lower than the angels, namely the Yeshua. He was crowned with glory and with honor because of the death he suffered, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He's our representative. He's our substitute. He's our example. For it was fitting for God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in leading many sons to glory, to perfect through sufferings the initiator, that first fruit Yeshua, to perfect through sufferings the initiator of their salvation. Yeshua is the initiator of our salvation. The message version says it this way. It makes good sense that God who got everything started and keeps everything going now completes the work by making the salvation pioneer, Yeshua, perfect through the sufferings as he leads all these people to glory. Since the one who saves, Yeshua, and those who are being saved, you and me, have a common origin, human, Yeshua doesn't hesitate to treat them as family. He treats us as family because he's a part of our family, our human family, saying, I'll tell my good friends, my brothers and my sisters, all I know about you, God. I'll join them in worship to praise you. So let's close tonight with this question. Where does Yeshua land when you imagine him? Fully God, with a little bit of humanity? Not very much like you or me, or fully human? A lot like you and me, and yet without sin. Because one of those areas tonight, he wants to be Lord in your life. He wants to either be your representative He wants to be your substitute or he wants to be that example. Ideally, all three. But my assumption is that most of us don't capture the full weight of God's humanity and his divinity coming together as one. And so we leave out one of those pieces. He either isn't our substitute or our representative or our example, because he either isn't all God or he isn't all human. So one of those areas is being left out. This is our challenge tonight. The power of Yeshua in our lives can't be fully known until we comprehend and we embrace the fullness of who he is, fully human and fully God. This is our challenge tonight to find that area in our lives. It's interesting, I've been asking people since we were getting this message put together, how do you see Yeshua to a person? Nobody really can grasp the fullness of his humanity and his divinity together. People either lopsided on one, yeah, he's really human and a little bit of God or a lot of God and a little bit of human. He wants to be both. He needs to be both in our lives. This is why Isaiah goes to the trouble 
and many other places throughout scriptures to highlight the integrity of both places. So as we worship now, let's take a few moments with the Lord and ask him to make that integration in our own hearts, in our own faith, our own relationship with God so that he can be fully God and fully human so that he can come into those areas in our lives where we need a representative right now. He can come into those areas of our lives where we need someone to step up and to be our substitute, to stand in our steed, to cover our sin. In those areas where we need God, we need an example. How, how do I do this? How do I honor, honor you with my life in the midst of this? Sure, we pray that you would reveal those areas that we have not made you either fully God or fully man. We ask that you would Glorify yourself in those areas in our lives. And we pray this now in Yeshua's great and mighty name.